Liberated but ignored, Raqqa has been freed from ISIL for five years now, but the city is still reeling from poverty and devastation. So who's responsible? And how much of a threat is a resurgence of ISIL in its former capital? I'm Emily Angwin and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guest now in Norman, Oklahoma, is Joshua Landers, the director at the Centre for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. In Ankara is Murat Yesitash, director of foreign policy research at CETA, a think tank covering security and foreign policy issues. And in Bali is Ayman Jawad al-Tamimi, editor of Castlery Associates. Ayman is a specialist on Islamic State. A warm welcome to all of you. Joshua, I'd like to start with you. The goal was to free civilians in Raqqa from the grips of ISIL, but have they been overlooked since being liberated? Uh, yes, it has. And, and, uh, and in, it, <clears throat> in this, you know, sort of blame game, um, everybody is guilty. But the United States, as an American, I, I'd like to speak on the, on, on the part of the United States. And the United States put up with a rise of Salafist jihadist state in northeastern Syria right from the early days. And we have this from the documents that have been given out through WikiLeaks. Uh, the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, for example, already in 2012, said that it was the purpose, uh, it was the intention of the West, Turkey, and the Gulf states to allow a Islamic state of some kind to rise up in Northeast in order to pressure, to use it as leverage against Assad. And we see this time and time again in the American documents. Already um, in 2013, for example, the number two in the CIA gave us one single interview on TV, and he said that the way they were gonna get rid of Assad was by building up the opposition. And they said already the opposition is dominated by Al-Qaeda and, and related militias, these radical Islamists. So what they wanted to do was build them up to weaken the Syrian army, but they were f terrified of destroying the Syrian army. They said, because we will need the Syrian military and its institutions of the Syrian security forces are required to defeat Al-Qaeda when this is done. So they wanted to weaken the Syrian army, force the Syrian army to come to America to negotiate and then they thought they could get rid of Assad that way, that the army would turn on Assad like the Egyptian army had turned against Mubarak. They would get rid of him. Then they would build up the army to kill the jihadists in the Northeast. But in fact, their plan blew up in their hands and they built, they managed to build a big state or they didn't build it, but of course it, it emerged with the weapons that they were pouring in and then they had to go and destroy it. And so this terrible plan which didn't stand a chance of working, was partly the reason for why Raqqa was so destroyed and why it hasn't grown back again, because sanctions and other things are, are uh, and the terrible Assad government that's been left in place, are all responsible for the devastation that's been brought on Syria. And let's look at that devastation. Let's look at the problem before we perhaps discuss the solution. Amen. if I can go to you now, what is the current humanitarian situation like in northern Syria as it stands? Um, well, commenting actually specifically on Raqqa's situation, because I've actually been there in 
2018. I do remember when I went there, it was very, very heavy destruction, uh, buildings completely flattened, flattened or unusable. Um, uh, on the other hand, it wasn't completely devoid of life. It wasn't a ghost town. Um, and I think there has been just some limited progress in restoration of, of attempts to restore services like electricity and, uh, and water access. Uh, on the other hand, though, the, this process itself is, is largely dependent on aid provided by the United States and also by other Western countries uh, that were part of the coalition uh, against Islamic State. And the amount of aid they're really willing to provide is not commensurate with the amount of uh, destruction uh, that took place in Raqqa in particular during the campaign uh, to recapture it. And I think really to be sure that uh, in, in the case of Raqqa, there was always, there was, it was to be expected there would be a substantial amount of destruction just because the Islamic State, I think, was going to fight out till the very end uh, uh, in, in pushing back the student democratic forces. And also just because of the way um, the approach of Western countries has evolved towards these kinds of conflicts, which is that you rely on local manpower on the ground to do the fighting street to street. And then there's this very heavy dependence on airstrikes, which uh, does lead to substantial destruction. So actually, just in sum, to speak about the situation in Raqqa, it's still very bad. There has been some progress over the years, uh, but it's really not enough to uh, in uh, keeping with the amount of destruction that has occurred. And there are also just these long-term challenges for which there doesn't really seem, no one seems to be willing to step, to step up to provide a solution, like um, decrease in water, uh, increasing water scarcity, say with the lower river level of the Euphrates. And... Uh, along with that actually reduced access to hydroelectricity and uh, this issue of dependence on generators that we see. Yes, exactly. So it's not just necessarily the destruction, but also the humanitarian situation on the ground in the, with the likes of water and food and also unemployment. Murat, if I can direct this question to you, is that poverty and unemployment driving young men into the arms of ISIL? Are they using money to lure people? Will we see a resurgence of ISIL? I think, yeah, indeed, yes. Uh, but the problem is not limited with the ISIS. I think there are four different uh, dynamics to understand the current situation in Raqqa. The first is, of course, the the uh, potential of uh, ISIS resurgence in the in the regions. ISIS is very active. Yes, it is true that the territorial order of ISIS has been uh, has been collapsed, but uh, its territorial activities is still undermining the stability of the region. When, when I am talking about the region, of course, Raqqa is not limited. I mean, there are also other regions. For example, when we take into consideration the situation in El Hul camp, I think we have to uh, be very careful in terms of understanding the uh, real uh, uh, push and pull factors on the ground because of the PKKs and YPGs, uh, you know, weak security mechanism, the weak security procedures and the increasing corruptions of YPG over the management of Al Hulkam. So therefore, ISIS activities is still continuing, which will eventually may provide a freedom of maneuver to become an active organization on the ground. 
The second dynamics is about the PKK-YPG. I think uh, as we know that the SDF is one of the important organizations, political and military organizations on the ground to govern the city and the regions. But unfortunately, the dominant position of YPG over the local population is problematic. When we look at the daily activities of YPG and PKK, there are many problems about human, human rights violations. So when we look at the different reports which are released by international organizations, we can easily say that there is an intensive you know, human rights violations on the ground, especially against the local Arab populations. And the local populations, I think, are not happy about the dominant position of YPG. When we look at the, you know, the natural resource, I think the natural resource of the region is not used the benefit of the local populations. As you know, there is a strong link between PKK and YPG and YPG and PYD, I think are using this natural resource for the benefit of PKK's activities in Syria, Iraq and Turkey. So this is a real problem. I think PKK and YPG is also trying to change the demography in the region, which will eventually undermine the you know, the, the demographic balance in the region. So this, all these dynamics, I think, uh, provides uh, uh, some kind of grievances for the resurgence of, of ISIS. So there is also other dynamics in terms of the, you know, as you mentioned, limited water and electricity, access the difficulties for especially the, the children to access to educations, and especially the disease within the context of the, you know, the limited water and the local demonstrations against the YPG-dominated governance model. These are all, I think, you know, the, 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 the main dynamics for the push and pull factors and the grievances for the ISIS. The final point is about the, you know, the, the lack of a comprehensive solution mechanism for the future of Syria. And there is, an, there is no certainty about the United States' strategic position in the region. There are many conflicts between the regional actors, including Turkey, Iran, Syria, and other external actors. So therefore, there are many possibilities for ISIS to be become an active uh, terrorist organization in the region. Sure, and just to break it down for our audience, because there's lots of letters being thrown around. So the SDF is the Syrian Democratic Forces. The YPG is an armed Kurdish militia uh, that's been designated by Turkey as a terrorist organization. Joshua, now that I've made that point, I'll just throw it over to you. Obviously, Turkey and the US are major players in all of this. Uh, what does a... Re well, let me rephrase that. Talk us through the relationship between Turkey and the US in all of this and have the people in Raqqa become the victims of politics between the two countries? Well, they certainly are the victims of politics. Um, you know, Turkey is a NATO country. It's an ally of the United States. <clears throat> it has its own ambitions. The United States, in order to destroy ISIS uh, and this Islamic state that had grown up uh, in northeast Syria, had to dump the Arab opposition in Syria and side with the Kurdish opposition and the Kurdish forces, because they were the only ones that were willing to kill the Sunni Arabs that made up ISIS. And so America jumped, you know, switched horses in the middle of the stream in 2014-15 
and began to arm the Kurds. And the, the largest and most able Kurdish organization was the YPG, which Turkey considers part of the PKK of this terrorist organization. So Turkey got furious at U.S. strategy, which was to kill, which was to arm these people and train them uh, because it worried about the, the blowback inside Turkey itself. So this set these partners against each other. And today uh, there's you know steep competition because America is helping the Kurds and Turkey wants them not to. So Turkey is increasingly closing ranks with the Assad regime in order to try to collectively get rid of the United States and bring the Kurdish region back under some kind of control, whether it's Turkish control or Assad, the two are competing powers, but they have a common goal, which is to get America out and to undo this autonomous, quasi-independent region that America has built in the Northeast. And I think America will leave uh, not under this administration, because it's promised not to, maybe on, not on, even under the next one, but it will eventually leave. And it'll be like Afghanistan, where the Kurdish leaders who have hung their hats on America and, and, and become very dependent will have to flee the country. And the second rank of Kurdish leaders will make a deal with Assad, uh, who needs them to rule the Northeast himself, just like the Americans do. And so I think that's, that's the likely future in the region. And until that happens, there is going to be chaos. Raqqa is not going to be rebuilt. And America is not really interested in the Northeast because it doesn't want an independent state there. And it, it really will try to get out uh, in the next administration or the one after it. Eamon, would you like to respond to that? What do you see as the resolution between Turkey and the US in this part of the world? Um, I don't really see a resolution. Uh, I don't see a possible resolution that really uh, preserves, somehow preserves this Syrian democratic forces structure that's emerged with the backing of the US-led coalition against Islamic State. I mean, uh, as has been pointed out, um, that uh, the YPG, which is then linked to the Kurdistan Workers' Party or PKK, I mean, that's the dominant component of um, the Syrian Democratic Forces. I mean, the Syrian Democratic Forces, when it was set up in 2015, it was really attempt, uh, an attempt at a rebranding. I think they tried to downplay the YPG dominance of it. Um, and although the, y, although the SDF, YPG, incorporated many, many local Arabs into their ranks, um, it's still dominated by veteran Kurdish cadres and uh, people linked to the PKK. And uh, that does trigger some local resentment on the ground, but also in relation to this particular question, it infuriates Turkey, which sees uh, essentially the US as bolstering the um, PKK. So there isn't really a resolution, I think, that actually would uh, preserve this. There wouldn't be a resolution between Turkey and the United States uh, on this issue that would effectively preserve the, the Syrian democratic forces in the long run. Essentially, the choice would be between uh, an increase or expansion of uh, Syrian central government control or, um, or, or um, control by um, Syrian rebel groups that have been backed by Turkey and expansion further south uh, from the little pocket, for example, they created along the border uh, they've created along the border with Turkey in Raqqa province. So, um, yeah, there isn't, a, there isn't a, I think, a, a, a resolution that would favour the Syrian Democratic Forces in any way. 
Murad, I saw you nodding there. You have a response? I think, uh, you know, there are alternatives for, of course, and also there are uh, scenarios about the future. The first one is to, you know, maintaining the status quo, which is not possible for the short term because of the many dynamics on the ground and the dynamics in the regional politics, especially after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this is not the, you know, most likely scenario. The second one is the, you know, transformation of the SDF or YPG or PYD, whatever you call it. I think uh, there are some attempts to transform YPG and PYD uh, within the context of United States strategy in Syria, but it is not an easy task for the United States because of the very strong relationship between YPG and PKK. If United States is going to be successful in terms of transforming YPG and push back the PKK cadres from the YPG, then the transformation you know, will be the likely scenario in the midterm. But on the other hand, there is also the, the, the third scenario about the defeating YPG and PKK in the region. I think, uh, uh, you know, Syrian uh, government or Assad regime uh, is not capable to do so. And Turkey has the capacity to defeat the YPG on the ground. But when we look at the Turkey's priorities, I don't think that the, the uh, SDF-dominated uh, region will be targeted by Turkey in the coming future. And another, you know, uh, sub-scenario of the third scenario is the potential research, you know, the insurgencies against uh, uh, YPG and PYD in different cities, different regions in the northern part of Syria because of the many, you know, many, many uh, important dynamics, uh, conflicts, potential conflict between local Arab uh, communities and, and the Kurdish uh, uh, communities or YPG-dominated SDF in terms of, you know, uh, uh, YPG's uh, governance model. So, therefore, I think in the coming future, because of the, you know, the uncertainties and ambiguities on the ground, I don't see any kind of solutions in the near future. With the focus being on these armed Kurdish groups, could we then see a resurgence of ISIL in the background, Joshua? Uh, yes. I mean, it, it's not going to become monstrous, but it's it's going to carry on the way it's doing now. People in the region are desperate. And as long as the region, northern Syria, is broken up into these three major enemy territories, that is a Turkish-run northwest, a American-run northeast, and a Russian-supported Assad state, ISIS and other radicals are going to be able to run through the feet of these three major forces, which are enemies all of each other and see ISIS as the secondary problem. Uh, until there's a unified sovereign government that's able to stand on its feet with a police force and an army in Syria, um, ISIS is not going to be wiped out and nor are radicals going to be wiped out. So as long as the, the goal uh, of the international community is to keep Syria weak and divided, there will be a place for recruitment of radical Islamists. And not only that, you know, we're talking about foreign policy and politics, but we're also talking about people. What are the obligations of Turkey, of the US, of these major players to the people of Syria? Uh, I'll direct that question to you, Eamon. Um, well, I think in the case, uh, I, mean, I think it depends on which actor you're talking about. I think in the terms of the United States that um, certainly in uh, the areas where it's conducted its military campaign against Islamic State, and in particular in Raqqa, um, I, I 
I personally do think that there should be more of an obligation on the United States to deal with the reconstruction of the city um, and uh, restoration of life, to, uh, restoration of services, improvement of services, improvement of the infrastructure, um, as opposed, I think, to this more hands-off approach. Um, I just see that as a matter of obligation, given that uh, uh, the airstrikes caused so much damage to uh, the city. Um, but I can't really speak about obligations towards Syria as a whole on a on a, uh, a larger scale. There just seem to be so many divergent um, interests and conflicting goals that um, it's very difficult, I think, to bring about this comprehensive solution that's talked about as an ideal, at least in the near to medium term. And also in a half an hour program, we have to leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks to all our guests, Joshua Landers, Murat Yesitash, and Ayman Jawad Al-Tamimi. That's it for this edition of the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohammed Al-Aishi, Niad Al-Abidi, Fung Yi Nguyen and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Deepak Pushkaran. The program was edited by Vinish Valley-Lath, Lin Nguyen and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday. Hello, I'm Kevin Hurton. Al Jazeera Investigates is out with a new four-part podcast series, The Labor Files, the untold story of the vicious factional war that forever changed British politics. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.